Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Dr. Nawaraz Upadai. Nawaraz is Global Mental Health Director at Health Right International New York, and Associate Researcher in the Department of Public Health at the University of Copenhagen. He has experiences of working in different contexts, including low and middle income countries, as well as being educated in the Netherlands and working in the US. His interests include public health, mental health and psychosocial support, and strengthening community systems. He is currently integrating stress management into a peace building project in Uganda and in South Sudan, which I'm very excited to hear about. But first things first, welcome Nawaraz. Thank you very much, Laura, for having me on the show. I am absolutely delighted to have you here. And let's jump straight in because I want to hear about this current project. What actually is it that you're working on? Currently, we are working on actually scaling up our self-help loss intervention. This is an intervention that has been developed by WHO. Uh, and then with WHO, we have actually have piloted this intervention in Uganda among refugees from South Sudan, you know, stay, staying in the northern Ugandan refugee settlement. So the idea is that, look, there are many mental health problems, psychosocial problems that are unmet. And, you know, especially in humanitarian settings, it is difficult to actually provide one-to-one support because the specialists are lacking there in especially low and middle-income countries. We have the lack of specialists and also the resources. So actually we needed an intervention that can be delivered by lay health workers, lay people, like lay community workers. So together with WSO, we have designed this lay people delivered psychosocial intervention that can be actually delivered by anybody who have received one week training and have some level of supervision. And that can be implemented quite easily and everywhere. So that was the idea that we developed this intervention so it can work as a self-help and also facilitated by a peer facilitator or a facilitator at the community level. It could be the, the village health team member, community health volunteers, or school teacher, or the members of the mother's group, anybody that has social skills and some interpersonal skills and communication skills. And we do not need any prior mental health training to deliver this intervention. So the idea was that we wanted to scale up this intervention to the areas where specialists won't go. And so what does the intervention actually entail? Like, what is the content of the intervention? Actually, the intervention has five sessions. One is grounding. We all have you know, emotions that are flying here and there. You know, we get either excited or depressed based on the emotions. So we actually do the grounding. So this intervention is actually based on acceptance and commitment therapy. We accept whatever is there, the whatever emotion is there. We accept mm-hmm. it and then we commit to actually take action to change it. Mm. So, and so it is also based on mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Okay, so acceptance and commitment. And then for that, you have to actually ground yourself. Whenever you have a problem, the storm of emotions, you need to ground yourself. So it's called grounding. 
Mm-hmm. And then after grounding, you actually also deal with the storm. Then, you know, you have your values, how to act on the values. Mm-hmm. And then being kind to you and being kind to others. Mm. So, you know, five 90-minute sessions delivered in, you know, five weekly sessions, one session per week and mm-hmm. for five weeks. And I mean, something that really fascinates me about what you just said is these sessions are being delivered in very difficult contexts, right? So conflicts, active conflicts and refugee camps. And so I'm wondering what the reaction is to this session about being kind to yourself and others. I mean, what is the response like? Because I imagine I would feel very cynical if I'm in a conflict zone and I'm being told to be nice to people. How does it actually pan out? Actually, we have had very positive response from all the participants who have attended this session. Because, you know, look, you know, we all, no matter, you know, where we are in the, um, you know, high-income countries, we actually take less care of ourselves. We are actually not kind to ourselves. We always blame ourselves for, for something that did not go good, something that went wrong, oh, it's because of me, or, you know, I should have done this. So actually, we do not take care of ourselves. So we are not kind to ourselves, wherever we are. And then especially in the conflict setting, you are stressed with many problems, you know, m- many situations. So then you, you tend to blame yourself more. Mm. So then actually being kind to yourself, okay, okay, just be calm. Just take some time for yourself is actually absolutely needed mm-hmm. in the conflict setting. And also being kind to others is also really health gratifying, you know, showing gratitude to others mm-hmm. also helps you to manage your own emotions. Actually, I was also in many conflict zone myself. Like, you know, sometimes I blame, okay, why did I come here? You know, I was looking for a money, you know, like that, that good job, that pays good, like in you know, a conflict setting. No, no. Be calm. Be kind oh. to yourself. You know, you are also doing service. You are also helping. So it's both way. And then, this is a skill to support yourself and others. Mm. So to answer your question, yes, in a conflict setting also, you can and you should be kind to yourself and others. And our participants have really experienced positive aspect of this session. That's really fascinating to me. I mean, I had never considered that before, that aspect of, oh, if you're in a conflict, you're actually going to be meaner to yourself than you normally are. And I think being mean to ourselves and that mean inner voice is very relatable for a lot of people. But then I guess if we look at the the non-conflict context where you have victims of violent crime, for instance, or victims more broadly, and yeah, there is that theme of blaming oneself for the situation and being meaner to oneself and taking less care of oneself. So yeah, so thank you for showing me that this actually happens as well in conflict zones. It's not the conflict that it's blamed to everything. We also are actually quite unkind to ourselves. Actually, you know, everybody, even the people in a difficult situation, they have resiliency, they have power to to actually support themselves and support others. Mm -hmm. So what we actually do is that, you know, even in the most difficult situation, you still have your agency, your power to change. And so in our programming, we focus on the active participation of the population that are affected by the conflict because they have a lot to give it to us in terms of programming, in terms of you know implementation, in terms of you know researching, because they know the situation best. They are experts. 
by experience. Mm. So that is the basis, the fundamental principle that we are putting that you know everybody in the difficult situations have power to change and their involvement in, into our programming is really important. Mm. And so I'm just wondering who actually goes to these sessions? So you said you're delivering the training so people know how to facilitate them. But do people choose to then go or is it something that they are required to do? I mean, how do you get people at these sessions? So actually, first of all, we will do, uh, you know, awareness session about this intervention. Like this intervention is available there. Like if any of you are having some stress-related problem, like stress or if you need stress management, you know, you can actually try to come but then before that actually we do a baseline assessment and then we assess their level of anxiety their level of depression with the scales so this intervention is only for mild to moderate stress because it's very basic so we actually do the baseline assessment and we only take mild to moderate level of stress or psychosocial problems into this intervention and mm-hmm. if we find somebody with a higher level of stress or higher level of depression or uh, suicidal ideation, and then we directly refer them to specialist services and we do not involve them into this intervention because this is a first line basic intervention and it is helpful for only mild to moderate problems of stress mm-hmm. or depression. There are, of course, some special case examples like the uh, acceptance level are, you know, slightly different in, you know, different contexts because of the culture, you know, like this is a mindfulness-based, you know, uh, intervention, like mindfulness is like Buddhist philosophy, so sometimes it's quite challenging, but there is no mention of Buddhism there, no, no mention of even, even mindfulness. So we have tried to, you know, minimize that, but people know it, so sometimes it is uh, not challenging in, in terms of culture but once people are in the session then actually they really like it so mm. there is no problem once they are in the session they have started and the dropout rate from session one to session five is very minimal actually and what does this actually do for the people who participate if they go through this program there's these five sessions what are the outcomes for them in their lives one outcome is that they will have reduced symptoms of depression, anxiety, and stress. So there will be symptom reduction. Mm-hmm. One. Second, their daily functioning has improved, actually. We have also done a research on that, and we have found that their symptom severity has reduced, mm-hmm. and then their functioning level has improved. And mm-hmm. because of that, they have better family harmony, and also there is less gender-based violence and there is more communal support. People are also being kind to themselves and kind to others so that actually there is more, you know, a greater outlook of the life. Okay, mm-hmm. life has to be lived nicely. Yeah. Of course, we, we all are stressed with, you know, resources. We all have problems. Even the king has a problem, you know, like, you know, so resources are one aspect but how you take your life philosophy and how do you manage your life actually this intervention also talks about values what are your daily values what do you value how do do, do you take your time for yourself for your family how do you balance your life how do you manage the resources that you have you know 
some people have you know a lot of you know resources but they're still stressed they actually take drugs and others to actually manage their stress so not having resources is also a problem but but you know not having a values and acting on the values is a bigger problem so mm. the, this intervention actually teaches that you have to have a value and you know what is your value and how do you act on in a balanced way mm. you know, as you as you're saying all this i just keep hearing um i do these facilitations actually with ceos and business leaders around the world where we do things like talk about what are your values how do you connect to your values in your daily life and your business how do you be authentic how do you practice kindness how do you build trust within yourself or within your close relationships and typically these people are, yeah i mean they're very well resourced right like resources are not the issue but they do yeah. have the problems that you've flagged and they do still have these stresses and they they do still have this disconnection within themselves and so even though these are polar opposites in terms of context it's just it's very strange for me to be hearing them from both sides yeah i think one interesting aspect that i will share with you that we did a global survey mm-hmm. on the psychological stress of staff mm-hmm. okay and actually we found out that the staff in ukraine and the staff in other countries uganda and kenya and also you know high income countries mm-hmm. actually were equally stressed mm-hmm. so conflict of course had you know, some impact on the stress level but they also had a resiliency to actually cope with the problem mm-hmm. in terms of accept- acceptance level was higher there compared mm-hmm. to the staff based in high income country mm-hmm. because their expectation was oh you know it should have happened there but it's not happening so okay it's mm-hmm. not good like that but there because you know we were you know attacked by your enemy so you know we have to actually support each other okay this is a difficult time mm-hmm. we should actually support the nation like that kind of acceptance supportive attitude is higher so that mm-hmm. you can cope better mm-hmm. when you know when you have higher expectations and less supportive attitude and you have a higher stress no it's fascinating yeah and so what's next for you with these interventions are you working on different areas different things with this intervention we want to reach more and more people and more and more people in the rural areas in the you know refugee camps in the idp camps where normally these services are not available so we want to one prevent the onset of the mental health problems becoming more severe if they are not treated on time and we also want to actually facilitate peer facilitated models so that like, this will be an intervention which will also have support network like mm-hmm. in their you know, community they will also be discussing the livelihood aspects how we have integrated this intervention into l- l- livelihood component of our partner brac in uganda because mm-hmm. they are the specialists in livelihood activities and we are specialists in mental health and psychosocial support so mm-hmm. we have supported them to integrate this intervention into their l- livelihood programs so that the refugees the participants the host communities involved in the livelihood program can also manage their stress their anxiety so that they can also do a better livelihood activities mm. and then they also can have better family functioning so there is a connection so what we want to do is that this intervention to be integrated into the regular programming of the larger humanitarian actors so that they can reach more and more people 
we as health right we are a small NGO with a limited geography only five countries but if we support other humanitarian actors the government then they can actually reach more and more people so that is our aim so actually I will tell you that with this intervention we also developed a model that is called self-help plus 360 model mm -hmm. so th this model actually trains the government bodies the UN bodies the INGOs bodies and other humanitarian actors to integrate this intervention, self-help plus intervention, into their regular programming. So that after one year of engagement with us, we actually train them, we adapt the intervention into their context, the data tracking system, mm -hmm. the training and supervision system, and competency-based assessments. So mm -hmm. everything is done within this one year of engagement. And after that, they can take all our materials and they can do the intervention by themselves. They don't need us. So mm -hmm. that is the idea. Many of them, you know, like many of the stakeholders ask, oh, you are putting yourself out of business because after one year, they will be able to run by themselves. They may replicate the training for others and you will lose your business. And we said, no, we actually want, of course, we'll support other partners and we will have our business continued. The main aspect is that we want to reach more and more people mm. that are in need of this intervention and we cannot do that alone. So we actually have supported Ministry of Health in Uganda, the BRAC INGO in Uganda. We have also supported UNSCR in Uganda. So these are the three case examples that we have had in this model and all of them have been successful. And because of that, we have now extended our service to AMREF Health Africa in South Sudan. So that we are extending and also in Ukraine. And then we are exploring the possibility to expand it into Palestine, to mm -hmm. Ghana, to Liberia. Uh, we already have submitted a small proposal to support our partner in Palestine. And so tell me then about Ukraine. So you mentioned that you've done some work there. What does that look like? Yeah, actually in Ukraine, uh, we, the NGO that, that I'm working for, Health International, we actually, we are there for a long time, since many years. Mm -hmm. um, and then when there was a problem in 2014, like Crimea and in Eastern Ukraine, we actually developed a psychosocial mobile team approach where we were supporting the Donetsk and Luhansk region at that time with a mobile team that included this psychologist, you know, health worker, nurse, you know, driver, and then you know, they will go to the front line with a mobile car, a van, and they will actually meet the people on the front line and provide basic psychosocial support, emotional support, psychoeducation, and then they will also identify people that need other advanced support. And they will connect that people to, to the health facilities or other mental health care uh, support. That is called mobile mobile mental health team that experience really helped us and actually after the the uh, recent you know, Russian invasion many donors like this approach and they asked us to expand this into other regions and then we expanded from 13 you know mobile mental health team to 83 mobile mental health team now across spread across Ukraine and we were providing support at the metro station bus station border checkpoints and then we also in now we have included the lawyer in the team because we needed lots of you know legal issues um, of the property uh, of the the traveling 
to the border. Lots of legal issues were there. So we have included the lawyer in that team. So that team is now providing services. And in the event of lack of the established services, our mobile mental health team is there on the spot providing basic mental health support. I love this. It's like a little team of superheroes. I feel like that's the team of superheroes we all need in our lives, right? So we've got the the nurse, we've got the different psychological support, we've got the lawyer, we're going to be fine no matter what we encounter, I feel like. Yeah, we also included social workers so that a social worker will be dealing with children, children issues, and we have also included the basic emergency support kit so that we have basic uh, physical support also, like the material support. Hygiene kit and other like like you know, basic you know emergency kit and then psychosocial support together. And out of curiosity, are you doing any work with Azerbaijan Armenia in the ongoing genocide of Nagorno Karabakh? Is that also because it it seems to be kind of invisible, but it's also so close to Ukraine geographically, right? Actually, we have no program there. Uh, of course, we are actually supporting with our knowledge that you know, we are also a member of the mm-hmm. IASC Interagency Standing Committee that is everywhere mm-hmm. in the humanitarian context. Of course, we do share our mm-hmm. materials. The materials that we have adopted and developed in Uganda are now publicly available in WSO website. We have made them publicly available so everybody can use it. They don't need to you know, ask for permission to us. They are publicly there. Mm-hmm. So they have the whole manual adapted for the context with the screening tool and all we are also providing some free uh, advisory support and then if they need more support then you know they will be uh, paying a small fee for us to to support them you know like you know, in the design and uh, delivery of the intervention but we are also supporting Ooh. them on uh, advisory level support uh, free of cost so i could go to the world health organization website and i could just type in the search bar how will I how will I find these documents? Okay, so, if you, for example, if you search self help plus in WHO mm-hmm. website, then you will get the PDF, and then you will have like you know the uh, versions are there. You can read it, and if you need more information, then you know there is also email address. That's of me, and you can write me personally, and I'll provide more information, and my colleagues also can do the same. Awesome. And so what led you to this type of work? What was your journey that got you here? Actually, um, as you know, I'm from Nepal. I have been working in the conflict during the Maoist conflict of 10 years. Nepal is also a you know, poor country, low-income country. And you know, in many of the parts where the conflict affected, we did not have the mental health services. Still, you know, mental health services are very limited in Nepal. And then what I also learned is that the people in emergency changes setting. Actually, they don't need a bigger mental health support. If they can be supported like this low-intensity intervention, on time, this 70, 80, 90% of people can actually recover well, even without the bigger support. The larger portion of people recover with basic social support, basic in a food, shelter, and other supports, social support. And then only a few person of people actually develop mental health problems and they need specialist support. Mm-hmm. So if we can support the large portion up to 90% or up to 95% with this kind of intervention, mm-hmm. why shouldn't we develop and actually and support the majority of the people that, that, that can help themselves. So it's a self-help tool. So they can help themselves and then we actually reduce the burden 
of mental health problems by implementing this low intensity intervention so that was the idea and then luckily i know many others were also thinking the same and then this is how you know this intervention was developed and we were lucky to pilot in uganda with our organization and you know we are the only one up to now who have hands on experience in this intervention because this intervention was only uh, you know publicly available last year Mm. So we did the piloting, scale up, adaptation, the uh, randomized trial. It was all found effective, and then now it is publicly available. I mean, I definitely understand why you would do this project. It sounds really worthwhile. You've said it's really, really effective. But I want to understand your motivation, other than it's, that it's effective. I mean, why? Why did this become, for now, your life's work? Actually, uh, my own history that I come from a rural village in Nepal, far away from Kathmandu, two hours of plane flight, and then many days of a road, a difficult road travel. So that actually has uh, given me a kind of acceptance and commitment, you know, attitude from the beginning. And then I am also a practitioner of a vipassana meditation, which is a mindful meditation. So. I'm a student and I'm a practitioner of this for a long time. And then this intervention is specifically based on that. So it is kind of you know, like my own practice, my own philosophy. And then it gives me satisfaction if I can help other people to at least teach them basic skills on how to take care of themselves, how to take care of their family, and then also how to help ourselves. Um, at least I'm very happy that in the in the conflict setting in Afghanistan, in Burundi, in South Sudan, in Ukraine, that I have been able to at least give some support to the people that would need the most. So that is gratifying, satisfying for me. And it is also a gratitude to my teachers, to my relatives who actually taught me this philosophy, this kind of principle in the Buddhist custom. So I also feel that you know it's also gratitude to my teachers i mean honestly that story gave me some chills imagining this little kid in this sort of rural village in nepal and then now i guess a few years later <laughs> a few years later out here supporting people in a range of conflict zones and refugee camps and camps for internally displaced people as well and teaching them these lessons you took with you from your childhood i think that that's that's something really inspirational, actually. It's something quite beautiful about that. I think, you know, um, what I have learned myself is that we always forget small things, like you, me, everybody. We always want to, you know, uh, achieve big things, big things. We go for big titles, big, you know, achievement. But we forget small, small things. Like I am forgetting I don't give five minutes focus time to myself. If you, you know, really ask yourself, do you really give focus time to yourself? Actually, I don't think so. You might be looking at the news. You might be looking at something. So we all actually forget small things. If we do small, small things, actually, we can actually achieve many things in our life. For example, our eye is small and it's very important. Our heart is very small, but very important. Our mind is very small, but very important. So we should not forget these small things, the small moment, living at the moment, moment by moment. Accepting the reality as it is, not as you would like it to be. 
So that is a problem that in life we have. We want things to that we want, but we don't accept as it is. As I told you before, I have a stammering problem. I explained to you it might be a, maybe a difficulty for your listener to listen to me. I accept it. Of course, there are problems, but I accept it and I move forward. So this gives me satisfaction. I am not stressed because of this stammering, but you know, I am taking action. Mm, absolutely. I love this approach. And, you know, I can't help but smile a little every time I hear you refer to acceptance and commitment therapy because the, the, I can't remember the guy's name that came up with this particular framing, but he was one of my friend's PhD supervisors. <laughs> it's a small world, right? It's a really small yeah. world. Like, <laughs> I know this therapy. <laughs> How fascinating. Okay, so let's zoom out a little bit if we can. Because I was wondering if you could talk to us about the role of mental health in conflict. Because you've mentioned that it can exacerbate it, at least in the short term. Um, yes. Yeah. So can you share any further insight onto this? And it's a very broad question. So take it where you will. Okay. Uh, let me try to answer if I can. Look, you know, the research has shown that in conflict situation, the mental health problems almost doubles. The WSO you know, estimates and other research have found out that during the conflict, the mental health problems are exacerbated. Mm-hmm. You know, they actually get you know, more and more problematic. So, mm-hmm. of course, and then because of the lack of resources and constant movement and actually moving from the home to the IDB camp or even in a difficult setting. So, lots of displacement. Mm-hmm. Displacement also brings stigma. Mm-hmm. You'll be in a new context, new setting, the language issues, you know, the adjustment issues. So mm-hmm. conflict actually has many other impacts. Not only conflict in itself, the stigma migration, like the uh, language issues, and also the challenges into the new system, new setting. So mental health in conflict setting is really important. Every conflict programming should include consideration of mental health and psychosocial aspect. Let me give you one example. I was in an interviewing in Koshi River Flood in Nepal and also the Maoist conflict in Nepal and then Taliban conflict in Afghanistan. And in, in this all setting, if you don't think of the culture, if you don't think of their you know, uh, belief system, you won't be able to support them. For example, mm-hmm. if we are building a latrine in a place nearby a funeral, or nearby uh, the graveyard, nobody will stay mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And then if, if you have, so this is a small thing, but then if you actually consider this, then you know you, your program is likely to gain success. Mm-hmm. And then also like if you are developing a latrine far away from the, the light, it will be a problem, pr- 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 problem for, for many females to actually go there and use it because there will be people with ill intention. So that you know, you have to, construct the latrine at a distance where and it's safe to go and with the light system and the security and privacy is maintained. So mm-hmm. small thing, but they have the highest impact on the mental health and psychosocial well-being of the people. Absolutely. And so I guess related to that in some way in terms of our deeper thinking is the ethical aspect and I understand you've done some work on this. So how do we actually take 
ethics into account when we are working in conflict areas? I think that, you know, in any conflict situation, we need to take the ethical aspect, the ethical dilemma. I have written an article with my colleague that is published in you know, American Journal of you know, Ethics that we are actually discussing. We have lots of dilemmas when we are working in the conflict setting. Mm-hmm. In the article that we discuss is that, you know, if you are a practitioner doctor, should you prioritize medical treatment or should you also do a research? Mm-hmm. What should you do? And resources are limited. But if you are continuing to actually provide the clinical service that, that you do not have the latest evidence, then you don't know how effective are you. But if you do the research only, then people are also needing the immediate services. Lots mm-hmm. of dilemmas. How to uh, disclose the HIV status to the patient in, in a conflict zone? Mm. And like in, in African context, where your relatives also come with you, and then so then there are many cultural aspects that actually constitute the kinship, the relationship, and then that you need to look at it in this conflict setting. So mm. there are lots of ethical dilemmas that we all humanitarian workers face, and I think the organizations should have a session or discuss on these dilemmas how to deal with them, how to manage them, at least be prepared. Even if you cannot do it, just know that you know you, you can't do it. That's already a help, you know, a big help. Mm-hmm. Rather than saying, oh yeah, we can't do it, you know, what to, you know, it's better that, you know, you know, you have discussed on the ethical dilemmas, there mm-hmm. might be this, this problem, and these are some of the suggested solution, but they may not work in the context, so you try to find out your own solution but these are some of the guidelines and I think ethical considerations should be mentioned in any conflict work that we Mm. do or any uh, disaster mental health work and second aspect that I think we did not touch much is that the caring for the carers especially Mm. the staff frontline staff also need mental health support they are in a burnout they have they have experience or have listened to very traumatic experiences of the client. And in the context of Ukraine, our frontline workers are also the survivors of the conflict. So that in this unique situation, we also need to have a special program f- for frontline staff so that they, they can heal themselves, so that they can heal others. So staff care, staff well-being is really important. And then actually accepting this need we have developed a caring for the carers model in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. We actually designed this intervention uh, by our survey, research, and this is an intervention that, that is peer-led, peer-facilitated intervention. And then we have just you know, finished our pilot and we will be doing the global rollout in next year. Amazing. Well, that'll certainly be something to look forward to. It sounds, I mean, honestly, it sounds like you, the work you're doing is absolutely incredible and it's innovative and important. And so I'm just, I'm really impressed with everything you've shared with us today. And for others who are also impressed, if they want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you? Because you, you're very difficult to Google. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
they can find me in HealthRide International website. There's a profile of me there. And they can also look me at Frontiers in Public Health Journal, where I am the you know, associate editor there. I have also, you know, led this special issue on uh, mental health among marginalized communities uh, at the TS in Public Health Journal. And then they can Google me on, you know, Google Scholar with, uh, with my name and they can get my articles. There are on, so um, many articles. Yes, so many articles. Yes, so many articles. I was like, is this all the same guy? Like, does he never stop writing? Oh my goodness. Yes, so many articles. Amazing. And I think, yeah, if they want to also want to reach me, they can write me email on the, those articles. I have my email mentioned and they can reach to me and I will be very happy to respond. Super. Well, I'll include links to some of that as well in the episode description so people can start tracking you down and learning more. Look, thank you so much again for joining me today, Nawaraz. It's been really a pleasure and a fascinating conversation. And for everybody else, until next time, this is Laura May with the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com. This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.